you just witnessed the scene from the movie The Passion of the Christ. And the particular scene that we saw is a metaphor you probably know for the battle, the great battle that occurred between Jesus and Satan all throughout history, but especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting, is it not, how important gardens are in God's story? How important gardens are in in God's plan, Garden of Eden at the beginning, Garden of Gethsemane at the crux of history, and the garden-like qualities of the new city, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21-22. When we last left Adam and Eve, disaster had befallen them in the Garden of Eden. But you may be relatively new to this story. In fact, this is the first Sunday for some of you. And you need to know that we're in a series in the book of Genesis. Uh, Today's message is the eighth sermon in this series. The first one being an introduction in Colossians chapter 1. And then seven messages in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, We're going to pick up considerable speed from this point. And we're going to cover chapters 4 to 11 in the next three weeks. Um, Why so much time in Genesis 1 to 3? Well, for starters, everything begins here. Furthermore, the patterns that are established in these three chapters are amazingly obvious for anyone who understands life in the context of a God and a a creator. You know the maxim, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Understanding God's ways and His unchangeable nature from the beginning, speaks loudly into the contemporary lives of those who have ears to hear. So the time in Genesis 1 to 3 is not just thinking about the past, it's thinking about the present and ultimately the future. Uh, One of the primary reasons we're examining these chapters very carefully, though not necessarily in the particular areas you would have anticipated, is because of the gospel origins that are found here. We tend to think of Old Testament law, New Testament gospel, and grace. But gospel is all the way through Scripture. And the origins are in those first three chapters of Genesis. In fact, it is, it's impossible to, to fully grasp the meaning, the beauty, the benefit of, of the gospel while at the same time understanding the warning and the sheer terror of rejecting the gospel unless we understand these three chapters. And interestingly, the first mention of the gospel is in our text this morning. The first mention in the Bible of the gospel is in our text. It's in the context of a story, a true story, that powerfully and viscerally points us to the God, not only who does not, not only the God who does not wipe out rebels, but also the God who makes a way for those who have sinned against him. If we read Genesis as we should, then our focus repeatedly turns to the Lord. It's away from us and how we messed up, but it returns to God and how good and gracious he is in our lives. So back to the story. Adam and Eve were put in this beautiful garden, and they were told, you can have anything you want in here except for this one tree. Don't eat from the fruit of this one tree, and you know exactly what they did. They ate the forbidden fruit. 
Now think again about specifically Genesis chapter 3 and how important it is to understand who we are, where we are today. If we don't understand Genesis 3, then we're not going to understand the rest of the Bible. We're going to see it the way most people see Jesus as a God who spoke or, or as a man who spoke very simply and talked about love and love only. I don't know how in the world you can read the Gospels and think that the teachings of Jesus are simple. Nobody understood what he was saying. They, they didn't get it. He used simple images and metaphors, but, but he was communicating deep truth that people just didn't understand. And he spoke a great deal about judgment. But if you don't understand Genesis 3, you won't get that. Furthermore, if we don't understand Genesis 3, we will not understand ourselves. All that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with us, all the tension in our relationships, all of our fears, our hurts, the greed that we enjoy and the jealousies that we nurse, being misunderstood, feeling betrayed, the guilt that we feel from the past, the thing that we hope nobody else finds out about. You've all got something, don't you? You hope nobody else ever finds out about that. The aging process that picks up speed as we go. The, the wasted time, the time that we didn't spend with our loved ones. Everything. All that is bad in the world, all that is wrong in our lives stems from what happened on that day at that tree in that garden. Everything. Things are not the way God intended them to be because of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they found themselves running away from him. And that's always the case when we sin. We're running away from God, wanting to be in charge of our own lives. We want to be the master of our own fate. Ridiculous as that sounds when you think about it. I'm the master of my fate. Well, do you control it or is it fate and, you know, the deal? It's ultimately saying no to God and yes to self, which is idolatry. We worship ourselves instead of God when we sin. In fact, it would be fair to say that all sin is all idolatry and the cause of all sin is unbelief. We're going to explore that concept a little more later this morning and also in home groups this week. I almost lost my voice yesterday, not at the Carolina-Georgia Tech football game, but when the chairman of the board were playing before that. You, you know, chair, chairman of the board, you guys, Carolina. Well, no, I better stop there. Adam and Eve ran away from God. The instant that Adam followed Eve's lead and he took the fruit and ate it, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. Now, public nakedness is, is perfectly okay in a perfect world. Absolute complete nakedness is okay in a perfect world, but in a fallen world, it's shameful. It's, it, it's identified with sin. And so Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together in an attempt to cover their shame. And then they heard the voice of the Lord in the garden. Adam, where are you? And they did exactly as we did when we were children. 
And we had done something we weren't supposed to do, and we had done it clumsily, so we were going to be found out. And we go hide in our rooms, and we hear the voice of our parents saying, where are you? What have you done? And we seek in every way possible to rationalize to our parents what it is that we have done that was so wrong. Now, multiply the fear that you felt then by about a gazillion, and you have a little sense of what Adam and Eve felt. And they do exactly what we did when we were kids. They, they were blaming something else. They were doing something, anything but acknowledging their sin. God, I was naked and I was afraid because I heard your voice, and, <coughs> and I didn't want you to see me this way, so I hid. But, but God already knew what our ancestors had done. His questions <coughs> were not so that he could assess the situation. He already knew he was doing this for their benefit. <coughs> it, it, because it's impossible to correct the problem of sin without first acknowledging not only that it exists, but we're responsible for it. There is no cure for our situation in life without proper diagnosis. Why did you do that, Adam? You, you wouldn't have eaten from the one tree that I forbade, would you? And, and then the excuses began. Lord, it wasn't me. It was that woman that you gave me. How true we know this to be. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, just kidding. Hey, look, who was Adam blaming? Who was he blaming? Was he blaming Eve or was he blaming God? He was blaming both of them, right? I mean, he was blaming anybody he could to get out of this predicament that he was in. I've told this story before. I knew this, uh, <clears throat> these, these two little twins back many years ago, um, Jason and, and Nicole, we'll call them. And, and Jason was a little bit slow. Uh, and Nicole was extremely bright. And Nicole, because she was just such a, a good person, out of the goodness of her heart, and I'm saying that in, in, in the light of Genesis 3, so it doesn't really add up here, but, but you know how we're made in the image of God and, and good things that we do are because we're made in his image. And so she would protect Jason. She would kind of look out for him and in fact at times would even take responsibility for something that he had done. And so one day the mom had made a, a chocolate pie and she came in and there was one piece missing. And there was chocolate pie all over Jason's face. You know, and she said, Jason, did you eat that pie? And he thought for a moment, he said, have you checked with Nicole yet? <laughs> <laughs> That's who we are. That's, that's Adam right here. Adam is, you know, saying, hey, look, don't look at me. Look at this, this woman over here. <clears throat> so then God shifts to Eve. So what have you done, Eve? Lord, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate the fruit. Notice that she did not take responsibility for handing the fruit to Adam any more than he took responsibility for protecting her, not protecting her, when she was in spiritual danger. Move, shifting blame, always. It's somebody else. They both admitted, well, by default, they admitted that they had sinned because they were caught red-handed. But neither wanted to take responsibility for disobeying God. Their excuses didn't get them anywhere, and God began pronouncing 
judgment. But he didn't execute them. He could have. He had made the rules, and the creatures had disobeyed the rules. They had broken the rules in a stunning display of ingratitude in their attempt to be the masters of their lives. I don't think we, we don't put ourselves in that garden and we don't see how beautiful the place was and how many incredible privileges that they had been given. And yet they ate of that forbidden fruit. Isn't that the way it is in life? We've been given so much, but we justify taking that forbidden fruit, whatever it may be. Adam and Eve were idolaters because they worshiped power and knowledge in themselves above God. God could have destroyed him at that moment, but he did not. And we're going to see in short order that he is a God who makes a way for his creatures to be reconciled or to be restored to full relationship with himself. But you know, there was a cost. When God made a way, it cost him. It cost all of us as well. because The sin cost this couple. And this cost was not only toward the first couple, but also to the earth, not to, the, to mention to, to the relationships that were forever destroyed between anyone who would be born from Adam and Eve and God. So much so that we are born in our sin and condemned. Adam acted as a covenant representative for all humankind. And so his, his sin alienated the entire human race from God. So that unless God makes a way, we will pay for our sin for his sin. For the wages of sin is death. But not only were relationships between humans and God affected at the fall, so were all relationships between humans. Had an argument with someone you love lately? Well, depending on how fresh that argument is, it's going to be dependent on whether you say, yes, I love that person, or no, I don't love that person. You know, I had an argument, but it wasn't with somebody I love. God's first judgment We'll come back to that in a bit. God's first judgment was on the serpent, whose body was inhabited by Satan. So the curse is twofold. I mean, it's not until the New Testament in Romans 16, 20, and in Revelation 12, 9, in fact, that we know that Satan is behind the serpent. And by the way, <clears throat> if you're just joining us, or if you've been here, and not only if, if you've not fully embraced the significance of this, We've talked about how God identifies himself in the first couple of chapters, well, the first chapter in the first portion of chapter 2 as Elohim, which is a name for gods. It's a, it's a plural name, and it could be used just for gods of a garden variety god. Garden variety gods, I mean. But when it is used of the one true God, the fact that it is plural is magnificent, causes us to see his his. his, his power, his, his magnitude, and his um, transcendence, that he is so far beyond anybody we can understand. He's known as Elohim, the God who creates all the universe and who is the master of all. Then in Genesis 2, we see his name Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name that he uses with his people. 
But he didn't use Yahweh in his relation, in his interactions with Adam. He didn't use Yahweh in his interactions even with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't until Exodus that we see the name Yahweh first being revealed to Moses. And God tells Moses in that time, he says, I am Yahweh. I did not reveal myself to your forefathers this way. I didn't reveal myself to anybody until right now. Moses is the one who wrote Genesis. And so when he's telling the story to the children of Israel, because that's who were the first hearers of this story, he wrote Yahweh into the story. Now, why is that significant? Moses knew more than Adam and and Abraham and those guys knew. So that's why we can so easily see Jesus when we look into this story. We see Jesus already there. And when we look at this story of, uh, uh, of sin and we see the hope that is revealed, we know he's referring to Jesus. It's not until the New Testament, though, till we find out that Satan is behind the serpent. I, I think the Old Testament saints figured it out. They knew. They knew who their great enemy was. The book of Job which was written about the same time Abraham, uh, excuse me, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, uh, uh, recognizes this great warfare that's going on, spiritual warfare. Satan's in heaven, and he's interfering in the, in the affairs of man. So, so <clears throat> Satan and the serpent are one. The serpent was condemned to crawl on his belly and eat dust. Not exactly a position of honor. So why did God put this judgment on the serpent? I mean, was the serpent complicit with Satan? I mean, did he have enough reasoning powers to recognize that he was rebelling against God's ordered nature? We don't know, but we do know about snakes. They're nasty. Did you, did you, did you, what did you think when you saw that snake, you know, slithering? Didn't like it, did you? No, I didn't either. Have I told you that nine of the ten deadliest snakes in the world are in Australia? And I go there every year. I, I, I'm glad I go in the winter of Australia. God equated Satan with the serpent. When in verse 15 he said that Satan's ultimate judgment would come from the offspring of the woman. Satan would fight against mankind, but through man, Satan would be judged. He would have limited powers against human, but ultimately one human who would also be God would utterly destroy him. Notice there is no mercy, there's no grace for Satan and the serpent. It's just judgment. His day is done. There is no hope for Satan. There's good news of plenty on the other hand in verse 15. When God begins to address Eve, I imagine one of the first things that she hears is that she will bear children. Oh, wait a minute. God is not going to to kill me right now. Uh, The death that God had promised that would come as a result of them disobeying his, his order not to eat this fruit would come in another form, but she would not be immediately executed. One consequence would be that the mother of all living would experience pain in childbirth. Now, this was quite some discipline that God enacted on Eve because I'm going to guess that Eve had a lot of children. So she experienced this pain more uh, uh, more than most. 
And every time I'm certain she would be reminded of her sin. Aren't you glad that women no longer experience pain in childbirth? Actually, I'm just glad that it's women who have the joy of childbirth, not men. Is that selfish? Absolutely it is. You know what my response is? Genesis 3. (laughs) The really good news for Eve and for mankind is that a way will be made for their redemption and for ultimate restoration to the way things were before the fall. Now, Adam and Eve would never see that promised restoration. They would never see Eden back to its original state in their lifetime. But there was a promise that it would come. It would come. They were redeemed. And the promise of redemption for all of us is embedded in Genesis 3.15. While we share the condemnation of sin with Adam, we also share in in, in the promise of redemption found in Eve's offspring when we believe in Jesus. Now, how do we get all that from this verse? Well, Adam, Adam and Eve wouldn't have gotten it. Moses wouldn't have gotten it. David wouldn't have gotten it. No one else would have before Jesus. But after Jesus' resurrection, same thing as Moses seeing Yahweh in the, in the creation story. After the resurrection, we must see Jesus in the Old Testament. We cannot not see Jesus in the Old Testament. Theologians call G- Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelium. Write this down. You're going to be quizzed on this next week. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Proto means first. Evangelium means good news or the gospel. So Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel. Although that it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the good news delivered is as much about God's rule as it is about man's redemption. It's also significant that, that Adam was bypassed in this promise, and it was the offspring of the woman through whom redemption would come. The clip that um, we saw earlier perfectly illustrates the truth of Genesis 3.15. We'll see all throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in Genesis, how Satan would come at that line, that line of Christ. Sean's going to talk about that next week some. How Satan is constantly trying to destroy. Look, do you think it was difficult for, for Satan to figure out Cain and Abel, and then Abel's out of the way, and then Seth? Do you, you think it's difficult For Satan to figure, he understands the way God is working and he's constantly trying to mess with the line through whom the Redeemer would come, through whom the offspring would come that would crush his head. Over and over it looks in the Old Testament and especially in Genesis as if God's plan will be thwarted. Satan continually fights against God, but God will never be bested. I don't know how, but somehow it it, it appears to this day Satan thinks somehow he's going to get over on God. And somehow we think we're going to make our lives better by doing it our way instead of God's way. Stunning, isn't it? We continue to question God's word just like Satan did last week and got Eve complicit with him. 
The promise in Genesis 3.15 is that while Satan will strike at Jesus' heel, even, even killing him, the blow that God would deliver to Satan through Jesus' resurrection would be an irreversible mortal blow. You know, <clears throat> ask David to get that clip ready from the Passion of the Christ. And um, especially being sick, we weren't communicating much just a little bit through 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 texting and stuff toward the end of the week. I'm very glad that he left out the part that's right before that because Satan is saying, you don't really think you can die for the sins of the world. I don't think Satan had any idea what was about to happen. I think when Satan killed Jesus, he was ecstatic, dancing with glee. Now, good chance that, you know, he, he thought, you know, just talk about this resurrection. I better make doubly sure that nothing happens here. So he gets, encourages people to get this guard watching over the tomb. And you know the deal. Satan constantly thinks he's going to get the better of God. We're told in Revelation 20 that Satan will ultimately be thrown in the lake of fire for all eternity. Not a popular thing to think about or say these days. Not, not a good thing, not an easy thing to say, because people don't want to think about hell. But we're told that not only will Satan be thrown there, but so will all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. All humans. If you don't, if you're not written in the Lamb's book of life, that's the eternal future that you face. So how does one get into the book of life? By, by doing good works? Heavens, no. It's impossible. Ever since this day that we're reading about in Genesis 3, we cannot ever do anything to make ourselves worthy before God. Look, I don't know if you've picked this up, but even Adam and Eve are a horrible, horrible model for repentance. And yet God is redeeming them. It's not about who they are. It's about God's gracious, loving gift of salvation to his children. So there is no way that our good works will ever get us into the Lamb's book of life if we've seen anything. We've seen that unless God makes a way for us, we are eternally condemned. There are so many New Testament verses we could use to illustrate how God's promise of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in, in Jesus, but one will suffice, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think probably, people, you know, if I ask you, what do you think, if you only had one verse in Scripture, what would it, would it be? You'd say John 3.16, most of you would. That's the only verse I've got to share with somebody. I think this is the one I would share. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Even though he knew no sin, there was no sin in him. He became sin when he was on that cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is perfection. This is what is required to stand before God. That's what Jesus was. This is who we are. It's not the same. But in God's plan, he caused Jesus to become sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is nothing that we can do to achieve this state. It, continuing the metaphor, this fist is, is, is permanently frozen. There's nothing we can do unless God 
does this for us, and he doesn't do this unless this happens first. Jesus became sin so that in believing in his promise of salvation and redemption in Christ, we find forgiveness and we become just like Jesus. When, Jesus, when God looks at us, he's not pleased with us because of the good things we do. He's pleased because he sees our, his son. And if he doesn't see his son, he's not pleased at all. But when he sees his son, he is totally pleased with us. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about your good works outweighing your bad. It's about believing that Jesus died on the cross for you. And he absorbed every last ounce of God's wrath that was justly directed at you. I, I just think of it as, as Jesus getting in the way. God's wrath is coming right at me and Jesus got in the way and absorbed it. And he drank the la- to the last dregs that cup. He was saying, let this cup, please, God. Please, Father, let this cup, because he knew what it meant. And I, I believe that Jesus on that cross suffered the equivalent of, a, of an eternity hell for all of us. We don't get that. In the same way that Eve's sin cost her dearly. Our redemption came at the great cost of God sacrificing his son on our behalf. In addition to the pain in childbirth, Eve's relationship with Adam would forevermore be changed for the worse. Uh, She would desire to control her husband. That's what this verse means. She would desire to control him, but he being stronger would rule over her and and, and, and the implication is that he would rule without mercy and without the kind of love that God designed for marriage. The New Testament pattern for marriage, a husband sacrificially loving his wife and, and, and a wife submitting respectfully to her husband's lead was in place before the fall. See, it wasn't just because of the fall that God said, okay, here's the way marriage is going to be. No, it was in place before the fall, but the fall perverted anything, <clears throat> or everything, I'm sorry. Our only hope for, for homes that, that anything could come anywhere close to resembling God's designed blessings for marriage can only be realized as we submit to his plan. And, and we can only do that in the strength of Jesus. Remember last week, we talked about how Individuals, organizations, nations, in fact, do better. Even those who don't have a covenant relationship with God, they do better when they follow the plan that God has laid out. The design that God has made. for the, This is the best way. Look, Proverbs is not full of promises. It's full of principles. It tells us the best way to live. You need to be careful when you, you look at Proverbs. You say, well, I can't believe it didn't happen. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And some of you are saying, I did everything as far as I could tell right. And what happened? It's a principle that generally applies. It doesn't always work because there's always sin fighting against God's design and God's plan. But when we follow his plan, it's best. And his plan for marriage is for the husband to lovingly lead and for the wife to lovingly submit. 
Men, women, the, the worst thing that you can do, the worst thing that you can do for your family, for your, for your relationship with your husband, and for, the, and, and for your children, is to gain control over your husband. And, and, and because of Genesis 3, that's what you want to do. It's natural for you to want to do that, to dominate. Do you have more sense than him? Of course, we can all see that. But I'm, it's not God's design. Men, the worst thing you can do for your marriage and for your children is to fail to lovingly lead your family. And that means first, lovingly lead your wife. And the design is so clear. That even if we do it poorly, it's better than not doing it. Does that make sense? None of this can be done apart from the Spirit of God giving us joyful obedience to God's Word. But ever since Genesis 3, we're prone to pervert and disregard God's Word. What's our hope? Jesus, that's what Genesis 3.15 is about. The, the judgment on Adam was, was severe, but it wasn't as severe as it could have been. Can you imagine what, what Adam thought when God first said, because you have done this, cursed. Now, Adam has already heard God curse the serpent. He's given Eve a pass, but he's recognizing, I mean, some pretty bad disciplines, pretty severe discipline, but he, but, but he hasn't judged her in the way that we think of, of, of condemnation by any means. And, and Adam is possibly thinking, and, and again, last week we talked about how brilliant this man most likely was. His mind is probably lightning fast. You know how somebody says something and you just, you fill in the blanks before they even say it, and then they say something different. You say, oh, I thought you were going to say this. Maybe that's what Adam is doing when he hears God say, cursed. He's hearing, are you? Because you failed to lead your family, and I called you to do that, but he doesn't say that. The curse is deflected, and it's given Instead, to the ground, to the earth. Now, that's going to make life very, very difficult for Adam. And Adam was told that while death would be delayed, he would one day die. Nonetheless, he had avoided the stroke of God's final judgment against sinners. I suppose it was because of this sincere contrition and repentance. Hardly. Not even that's right. It was because of grace. To Adam and Eve's shock, after they sin, grace follows their trespass, and God saves them. I mean, he could have killed them. He could have abandoned them, but instead he acts on their behalf. He gives them a promise, and then he clothes them. Even God's act of driving Adam and Eve out of the garden and not allowing them to eat of the tree of life and live eternally in that state <coughs> was gracious. You know, it's significant, it's significant that God didn't say, get those silly fig leaves off. We've, we've dealt with this and now everything's okay. No. Their shame would remain with them. But in spilling the blood of an animal, and clothing them, covering their shame, God revealed his plan of redemption. 
there must be a sacrifice, a death to pay for sin. He essentially tells them that life is going to be hard because of what they've done, but he promises he's not going to leave them in their state. He is going to redeem them. And the rest of the Bible is unveiling the working out of this promise of Genesis 3.15 that gets us from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden to the tree, uh, tree of life in Revelation 22.1 and 2, and it flows through the, another tree on Calvary. I don't know if you've picked this up yet, but Genesis 3 has an awful lot to say about life in the 21st century. Martin Luther said, faith is freedom from being an unhappy God. Luther said a lot of brilliant things, and and, and because he did not explain them, a lot of people think, well, that's weird. Um, But just think about this in context of all that we've said today. Uh, I, I mean, this would mean, if this is true, this would mean that, that apart from faith, I'm trying to be my own God. Exactly. We said all, earlier that all sin is idolatry and the cause of all sin is unbelief. Think about the idols that we look to for, for salvation. These are the things that are going to save us. Financial security. Look, I don't, I don't need to be wealthy. I just... I just want enough to make sure that my family's going to be all right. Well, you know, maybe being wealthy wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, and, and just think of all that I could do for the kingdom if, I, if the Lord would just give me the money. Um, but, you know, who needs money if you've got the perfect marriage, the perfect family? I, um, I guess I... I, I I struggle with this next one more than any other. Health and fitness. You know, I just, in the pursuit of the perfect body, you can tell. (laughs) But hey, if you have your health, you've got everything, right? I mean, maybe all you want is for others to respect you, to think highly of you. Why? Because somehow that affirms your your worth and, and your value. Maybe you just need... You know, to step up in, in, in the level of home that you're in or the automobile that you drive. And idols come in all shapes and sizes and models. We somehow sense often the need to justify the meaning of our lives. And hey, who's not into politics these days? I mean, this, this party is going to save us. Oh, now we know better than that, but this one's going to doom us, so we better act like this one's going to save us because if they get in power or they stay in power we're done we pursue all of these idols out of fear fear that if we don't make our way in this world. If we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to be taken care of. Even our good works and even our deep sorrow over sin. Look, look, the New Testament focuses on repentance. And there are lots of verses that talk about sorrow and contrition of heart and how God accepts that. But you know what? We found a way to make that an idol as well, brokenness over sin. 
Well, I can just see you're not broken over your sin. The way I'm broken. I went home and I cried for two hours. Congratulations. You've made an idol out of something good. And we do that all the time. When these good things become ultimate, they're idols. And they point to a worship of self instead of worship for the one true God, our creator and and redeemer. When we put our faith in Jesus, our fear turns to faith. And when fear turns to faith, we're free because we no longer have to save ourselves. The gospel is for those who have crashed and burned. Not for the good. Not for the healthy. Isn't that what Jesus said? I didn't come. Those who are, who are well don't need a physician. And as long as you think you're okay, you're not going to go to the doctor. Real freedom happens when all the resources that we have in the gospel of Christ completely replace any sense of need to secure for ourselves anything beyond what Christ has provided for us. When we're young, we want to change the world. By middle age, we realize we can't even change ourselves, much less our spouse or our children. It's why we need Jesus. In these past two weeks, we've, we've thought a lot about temptation to sin. Most of our efforts to overcome temptations involve self-effort. But every time we yield to temptation, the reason is unbelief in the gospel. Unbelief in the gospel. Every, every time we yield to temptation, yes, every time, we want to be in control of our lives. And even though <clears throat> we know that sin is ultimately going to control us, right now I'm in control of my life. You know what it's like when things go badly. You're tempted to eat, to lust, to, to, to pour yourself into your job, whatever, just to be distracted Leading away from God because I can control this part of my life. And I need to do that right now. I'm, going, I'm just going to worship myself ultimately is what we say. Most of us choose to live our lives depending on something smaller than Jesus. The loneliest moment in life is when you have achieved that very thing that you thought was the ultimate. That very thing that would justify your existence. And it lets you down. How many times do you hear athletes say that? I, I, I thought that was going to be the thing. But it wasn't. When we lack faith, we make garments to cover the nakedness of our lives. And that posture puts the burden on us for saving ourselves. Either we clothe ourselves or God clothes us. And when we start sewing garments, the posture, that posture puts the burden on us for saving ourselves. Our failure to lay aside sinful behavior is the direct result of our ongoing disbelief and the resources that are already ours in Christ. Which is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, all the time. <laughs> See, the gospel is not just to be pulled out so we can lead somebody to Christ. 
the gospel, this, this great story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is all the way through Scripture. And if, it's, if it were anything else, we'd get tired of it. But it's the gospel. It never gets old. It never gets fully mined. It's new all the time to us. Our failure to lay aside sinful behavior is the direct result of our ongoing disbelief in the resources that are already ours in Christ. Which is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves all day, every day. When you are on your deathbed, and you will be one day, what do you want to offer God? I mean, you want to offer Him all the great things that you have done for Him? Or do you want to depend on all the great things he has done for you in Jesus. You know, we, 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 this little phrase, never thought about it until I was preparing this message. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? You know, yes and no. If it's done in the right way, if it's done in his strength. Better said, maybe, only, only one life will soon be passed. Only what God has done for you the rich, through the riches of his son Jesus will last. Salvation is about what God has done for you. You living for him is about what God has done for you in Jesus. And you will justify, you will rationalize all kinds of, 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 of attempts to be the master of your own life apart from Jesus until we continually, unless we continually come back to him and say, I can't do this this way because I know I'm, I'm, I'm like Adam and Eve. And, and why wouldn't we be? Adam lives in all of us. But if we belong to Jesus, he lives there too. And when we acknowledge the truth that we understand in Genesis 3, and we acknowledge our sin and we turn to Jesus, then all, all, of God's wrath that was directed toward us is deflected. Jesus absorbed it all. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.